series uh, today. Uh, for all those who are maybe visiting today or who just want to kind of refresh their memories, we're going through this topic, which is, yeah, facing adversity, learning the qualities of kingship within the Psalms. And the main point that we really wanted to kind of get at is to learn the stories behind the Psalms. So when we've been, and we've been focusing on David and Absalom and Saul, and we've been trying to understand what are the background to the Psalms and how, what can we learn from that and what can you learn from that that we can learn to face in adversity? Yeah. So we focused the first week with David and Saul. And then the second week was David and Absalom. And now we're coming to David and David, basically. And, often, and I thought, you know, how could I, what Psalms could I choose that would best represent what I'm trying to say? And I thought often we find adversity, I've said this before in another week, but maybe we might need to remember it. We can face adversity from different areas. We can face it from our friends and from outsiders. So that's why we looked at David and Saul. We can look at adversity from within our family, whether that's our close-knit family or within our church family. And that's why we looked at David and Absalom. And we can also have adversity within ourselves. And that's what we come to today with uh, Psalm 51 that we're going to be looking at today. So if you've got your Bibles, <coughs> you can turn to Psalm 51. We're not going to be getting there just yet, <laughs> so you've got a bit of time. If you want a Bible but you don't have one, please raise your hand and we'll get one to you. But I wanted to give you a brief explanation behind the story of the Psalms. If you keep your hands, that's it, brilliant. I wanted to give you a brief introduction as to what is the reason behind David writing this psalm before we get to it. So to do that, in order to do that, we need to go to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this is probably a story that maybe a lot of us are quite aware of. We've heard many times, maybe. But let's refresh our memories, or for those of us who don't know it, we can learn it for the first time. I'm not going to actually read the chapter. I'm going to do a paraphrase, summarize it for you. So it might make it a bit easier. So in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, David is on the top of his house and all his army's gone out to war, basically. And he's at the pinnacle of his career. He's reached the heights that God has led him to and everything seems like it's going absolutely perfect for him. And while his army's at war, he's sitting on top of his house and he looks out and he sees a woman bathing. And she's very beautiful. So he inquires, what's her name? And he finds out her name is Bathsheba. He also finds out that she's actually married to one of his soldiers called Uriah. And he asks his messengers to bring Bathsheba to him. So she comes into his house and they slept together and then she goes back to her home. Later on we find out she says to him that she was actually pregnant from that encounter with David. So David was in this dilemma, what do I do? So he tried to cover up his sin by asking his commander-in-chief, Joab, to bring back, bring back Uriah to the house so in order that he could sleep with his wife and the child could therefore pass off as his child. And therefore David's, David's sin would be thrown away, no one would have known about it, and it would all have been great. But when Uriah comes back, if on battle, he refuses to go back to his wife with the thought that all his comrades are out there fighting. So instead he sleeps at the steps of David's house. And he does this for a few days, and David figures out, this plan of mine is not going to work. I can't cover up for it this way, so I must think of another way. So he thinks of another way, and he, so he summons 
Joab again, and he says to him, can you put Uriah back into battle and put him on the front line, the place where he's the most fiercest of all, and then when the battle is at its worst, I want you to draw back from him in order that he may die. So that's exactly what happened. They, they went to battle, the soldiers withdrew from him, and Uriah was killed. And David's sin had gone overlooked. Bathsheba mourned for her husband, and then later David brought her back to him, and she became his wife really quickly, in order that the son that she would eventually have, people would think, would have been his from the very beginning, would never have been her husband's. So she, they would know that there was no affair. Deceit, lies, murder, doesn't look too good, does it? For the man that we say is a man after God's own heart. So he thought he's got away with it. And then we come to chapter 12, and this is kind of the main chapter for this morning. A prophet named Nathan knew what was going on, basically, because he was a prophet. And he came to the king, and he did this really great thing. He told him a parable, and I'm not going to explain what the parable was. But the clever thing about this parable was that he explains the situation that David was doing. And when David had heard what all this parable, and he mentioned that the man in the parable, he must surely die. And David said, well, you are the man that's in the parable. It's clever because it got David to condemn himself and not have a leg to stand on. And when David realized this, he said, I've sinned against the Lord. And that's when we come to our psalm today in Psalm 51. In anguish, in fear and worrying, he wrote the psalm, knowing that he sinned against the Lord. Knowing also that what happened previously with Saul was that his kingship was stripped away from him. So there's many things running through David's mind as he comes to write these words. So let's read it together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have, been, you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will treat, teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you, will not de- you do not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. 
you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit in a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings, and the bulls will be offered on your altar. What an amazing psalm when we actually come to understand it, hopefully a bit more today, it will become even a bit more amazing for us. And actually this week, I've just been informed this morning, is actually a Jewish festival, and in, within this Jewish festival they celebrate Yom Kippur, which is to do with confession. And I think confession is something within a church, and within our lives as Christians, that we don't tend to look at too much, probably because we don't like knowing what we do is wrong. We don't like to admit our own faults. And today, I guess if you wanted to put a title on the preach, it would be the expression of confession. Because we're going to be looking at how does confession contribute towards this psalm that we can then gain to help contribute towards facing adversity. So in order to do that, we're going to look at this psalm in a specific way, and we're going to be looking at four different components that actually make up confession. These components are to see your sin for what it is, to see yourself for who who you are, to see God for who he is, and to see yourself how God sees you. So these are the things we're going to be looking at this morning. So let's first of all start with see your sin for what it is. (coughs) Now, like I said earlier, when we come to talking about confession, often it's something we don't like to do. We don't like to look at our own faults. And when I was thinking about different uh, analogies and different illustrations I could use for my preach, I was struggling. And as soon as God says to me, well, you know, why don't you have a point where it says, you know, you don't like to admit your faults. And then suddenly I had loads of examples I could share this morning. So I've chosen one that happened quite recently to kind of help make this point a bit clearer. Candice and I, uh, my wife and I have two sons. One is four and a half and the other one's uh, almost seven months and earlier, this, a few months ago, uh, Jed, my youngest, he, has, he sleeps in a cot, and the cot was on the top level. And Candice says to me, like most people, like most wives see their husband, they say, can you, can you put it down? And like most husbands, we just put off, and we put off, and we put off. And eventually, Candice was like, you know, enough's enough. It needs to be happening. We need to put the, the level down, because he's climbing out, and he could hurt himself. So it was about 8 o'clock. And then suddenly I realized, okay, I must give in to her and I must do it. So I said, okay then. So being the good husband I am and being so fantastic at DIY, I thought I'll take control as that will make get the job done quicker. So stupid of me. If anyone who knew me would know that I really am so rubbish at DIY. So, but like like any man, I tackled this cot as if it was a mission. So I had this level and I, it was several different ways you could bring it down, and I thought, I know best, I'll do it this way. So Candice, she stood by, she helped me do it, and after about 20 minutes of getting really frustrated, I said, right, enough's enough, I, was, I can't do it, I was wrong. So she said, okay, let me try. So I gave it to her, and within 10 minutes, it was up. <laughs> and that's just the way my life works in my house. Like if unless it's too high for her, because she's too short, anything below waist level, Candice deals with it. So. So we needed to sort of find a way. So I didn't like to admit my faults when I did that. And I think, you know, and often when we get to that point, especially when you're doing something, when you realize it's wrong, 
but you know it's wrong, but yet you've gone so far doing it that you can't admit you're wrong, so you just keep on doing it, don't you? Until hopefully something works out, but that didn't happen with me. And I think sometimes when we talk about confession, we don't like to admit our faults. We don't like to say, you know what, this is wrong. I've done wrong. You know best. And most maybe interesting enough is that sometimes when we get advice, it's sometimes not the advice that is the problem, is it? Sometimes it can actually matter who gives us the advice, can't it? I will take some advice from someone, some one person, but if I got the same advice from someone else, I might listen to them a bit more. It just goes to show like, all the different things that we work on and need to work on in our lives. It's almost as if we try to say things like, they don't matter, our sins don't actually matter, not sins, our wrongs don't really matter. And though David committed adultery and murder and all these different things, you may not have committed adultery and murder, but you may have harbored a bad thought against somebody. You may have looked at another man or another woman in a certain way. You may have looked at pornography possibly even, and then because you not feel like you're actually physically doing the actual act, that it's not sin. And we kind of rationalize our sin, don't we? We kind of think it's not that bad, and we try and deal away with it. Or we try and shift it onto somebody else. Jed got me up at four o'clock in the morning the other day, and I turned on the TV, and I was watching the debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Don't know anyone actually watched that. See if you've head shaken. That's not. I find it more entertaining to watch more than anything else. But it's interesting to see how politicians, you know, they don't deal with their own faults, do they? They try and shift the blame. And you often see that when one politician is given something, you know, what's your view on this, or why did you do this? Well, he doesn't really answer the question. He kind of shifts it onto, well, I may have done this, but have you seen what she's done? And sometimes we do that as well. But David, when he comes to the psalm. He saw his sin for what it really was. He knew what his sin was. And sometimes we need to admit to ourselves the stuff that are in our hearts. Maybe it's jealousy, maybe it's envy, maybe it's lust, maybe it's all these different types of things. And sometimes we need to bring them to the surface. And even though we don't like to look at it, but we need to do it. And we need to miss our faults and admit our sins before God. But before we can admit them to God, almost in a sense, we need to admit them to ourselves. The second point is to see yourself for who you are. If we go to verse 3, it says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. See, his transgressions, his sins, if you like, were always before him. Maybe it was this particular sin he was talking about, and I think sometimes we look at sin almost like a vending machine, you know? We think, oh, I have all these different sins, and I'll put in grace, I'll get it out, and I'll leave it, and it's done and dusted, isn't it? And we don't think about it. We don't think about what sin actually is and what it does to us. Even though we get forgiveness, we can treat it lightly. You know, there's a great uh, p- person called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, maybe people have heard of him, he died during, he was during the Second World War, he died just before it um, ended. And he came up with this great concept of cheap and costly grace. And often just because we know we're going to be forgiven when we come to God, we treat God's grace lightly. 
and his forgiveness lightly. But that's the exact opposite to what David done. It was costly to him. It was ever before him. And he expands this further when he goes on to verse 6. And he talks about in his mother's room, sin was there. In other words, he's not just saying, this is the sin that is wrong with me. He's saying, I am a sinner. And as a sinner, I deserve judgment before God. These are big words and big things. Judgment, things that we don't really like to necessarily think about them. But David knew that his sin deserved judgment. And then ultimately in verses 6 to 9 he says, if we just read it together. Behold you delight in truth in the inward being and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He knew what sin was and he knew what he was and he knew that he had a tendency to keep things hidden. And he says that God wants that what is in secret must also be the same in public. And yes, we have public and yes, we have private lives. But when it comes to our spirituality, they must be together. And so often that isn't the case. And I speak for myself so well in this. That our private lives are meant to be oozing out into our public lives in the sense of our spirituality. There was a pastor once who went to a rally and this guy said to him enthusiastically, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Expecting to get a real joyous reply. And instead the pastor said back to him, come live with me for a couple of weeks and then let me know what you think. (laughs) And it's truth, isn't it? The truth, the fruits of the gospel, the fruits of the Holy Spirit should be seen in our day-to-day activities. What's public should be made private in that sense. We should be transparent in our relationship with God. And David knew that. If we move on to verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Often when we think about praying to God for different things, we talk about situations. You remember a few weeks ago I said that we're meant to worship God despite of our feelings. And in the same sense, we're meant to pray to God despite our circumstances, despite our situations. So often our prayers start with, change the situation so that I may praise you. But actually David's saying, change me, so I can worship you. Ultimately, David knew it was himself that was the issue. And I think that when I, when I realise this, and I, and I read different books, and I come to grips with it in my own life, I think that is the most amazing and the most astounding thing to really think about as Christians, that we sometimes are the issue. We need to look at ourselves. And that's so countercultural to our society, because we like to place blame on others rather than look inwardly. David knew that he needed God to change him from the inside out, and only God was capable of doing that. He also knew that his attitude was key. His attitude was deadly important to his life with God. And we read this in verses 16 to 17 where he reiterates the whole concept of the heart. Verses 16 and 17 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God's sacrifices of God are broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, a God you will not despise. 
I don't know if you're kind of getting some sort of things that become a bit familiar as we're going through this series, that David is often referring to things such as his, as his heart. I've said it again and again, you know, when we talk about the heart, we're talking about the inner personality of the person. That is what God desires most of all. And it's almost as if it's really interesting at this point here because he's comparing the brokenness of a heart to offerings. So what is he actually trying to get at, in other words? What am I trying to say? I think he's trying to say this. That although sacrifices were important and necessary in those times to offer forgiveness of sins, they were useless and pointless if the attitude behind it wasn't correct with God. And ultimately, sometimes we think of sacrifices and we talk about living a life, a sacrifice life to God. But ultimately, that only works if our attitudes are correct. And it was this attitude of his heart that it needs to be broken. It needs to be humbled before God. And that's the thing that God looks for. That is the perfect offering. And the great thing is, this goes for him back in the Old Testament, and this will go back, and this will work in the New Testament, and this will work for us today. That ultimately, the thing that God wants most of all is a humble heart and mind that is so focused on Him. Not legalities or anything else, but just a humble heart. And that leads to the the other components of confession. To see God for who he is. In a sense, we've looked at this already throughout the psalm. That God will deliver him. He's looking for deliverance. He's looking for forgiveness. But he's also looking for God to work on him. But the most thing I want to focus on now is that he knew that God was a loving and forgiving God. And when the Jews, even in the new time of Jesus, would read this psalm, they would read the psalm as a confession psalm. And then when they read it, they would know that David is ultimately trying to point everything to say, here I am. I need you to know that God, I need to be forgiven. And when they looked for a Messiah, they wanted one that was going to fit the mold, fit the, the mold of Psalm 51 in a sense. And that had their God and their Redeemer would have to be one that is loving and forgiving. And where do we see that in this psalm? Well, it's kind of peppered throughout. But I really wanted to focus home on this really today as, as a key point today. But in order to kind of understand it better, I think we should go back to the narrative in 2 Samuel. I ended by saying of that narrative that David says... Um, I've sinned against the Lord. But there's actually a reply to that. And this is probably one of the most understated comments, understated things that could be said in this chapter. David reply, Nathan replies to David, Now the Lord has passed over your sin. You shall not die. How could that be? How could God remain just, saying that sin needed to be punished, and yet he could wash over it? He could pass over it. What if you were Uriah's father or Bathsheba's mother? How would you feel? How is it that God could remain just and yet pass over sin? Well, if we go to the New Testament, if you've got your Bible, I just also recommend you go to this. It's Romans chapter 3, verse 25. 
And Paul struggled with exactly the same thing. In Romans 3, 25, it's one of the most amazing verses. And if you want to know how Jesus relates to the Old Testament, I think this is the most powerful verse, probably the, most, the best verse that relates all that Jesus has done to the Old Testament and to the New Testament. Maybe one of the most important verses in the Bible, I don't know. But I'll put that out there. I'm probably building your expectations now. So let's read it. Romans 3.25 I put it on the bo- I put it on, I'm going to say board here as if I'm in college. I put it on here and in brackets I've written what some of the words mean. We talk about propitiation. How, you won't believe how many times people have told me what that word means and how many times I forget what it actually means. Or forbearance. And yet I'm like, ah. So I put it in brackets. So I'm going to read it as if it's on the screen. But obviously when you read it in your Bibles, it won't say this. But it makes it easier for us to understand. God put forward a propitiation, a wrath-removing sacrifice, Jesus, by his blood, to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or tolerance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying in this? He's saying that at Calvary when Jesus died and took our place, it's not simply us for now but it was also for those in the Old Testament the saints of the Old Testament, when it talks about our former sins, he's not talking us about our former sins, but he's referring it back to the Old Testament saints. When Jesus died on the cross, he not simply died for us, but he died for them also. How does that work, do you say? How does that work? He comes to this word when he says forbearance. He's saying that he tolerated these sins. And exactly what does that mean? We can understand this better if we look at Hebrews 9.15. And it says this, Therefore he is mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, the people within the Old Testament times, such as David, they ultimately knew that when they offered sacrifices, it can't deal with it completely. It can't deal with the essence of sin. It can't deal with the roots, with the consciousness of what we have as sin. Something else had to come. So we may say, well, how did they receive forgiveness then? Did they receive, receive forgiveness? Well, of course he did. Absolutely. But not because of the sacrifices that were offered. They were forgiven because all these sacrifices looked to Christ. All the sacrifices they were doing looked to Christ. They did not, when David did it, he did not necessarily see Christ or understand exactly how it was happened, but he had faith that these sacrifices were pointing towards something better. He had faith that he was going to provide a perfect sacrifice one day. And it was David's faith or the other's faith in Christ that saved them in exactly the same way as our faith in Christ saves us today. Why? Because 
he had tolerance over their sins. He passed over. The same word that used in 2 Samuel. He passed over their sins. Why? Because he knew that in the future he saw already that Jesus was dying to take away their sins as well as ours. So he could pass over the sins of David and all the other people knowing that he could see in Jesus. And when Jesus died, he didn't just die for us, but he died for everybody. Past and present. And if that is the truth, and if that's what we believe, then we have the best news in the world, don't we? As Christians. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if, you, if you've done, even done murder or all the sorts of things you've done. Obviously, it's not condoned in the Bible, but it doesn't matter what we've done and what our sins are. But Christ died, and in wrath from even sacrifice at that, taken away, God takes it away. So does this mean that there are no repercussions or consequences of sin? Absolutely not. If you go further on, you read further on in the story, you'll find out that David's son with Bathsheba actually died. Towards the end of the chapter, you know, understands that it was said to David that the sword will not depart from your house. And depending on how you read the story of Absalom, you understand that David actually saw that as possibly a result of his own sin with Bathsheba. There's consequences to sin. If we went out and murdered somebody, we still have to serve the consequence of going to prison. But the beauty of the actual gospel is that we can be forgiven only, only by having faith in Jesus. So you may be saying, this is kind of, understand. I hope you that makes sense. It's kind of really heavy and when I try to put it together. But what does this have to do with adversity? Well, when Christ died and took our place, he did, the, he did it to, res, to bring us closer to God, but he also did it and defeated all principalities, powers of darkness. Our greatest adversity was destroyed at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And when we bring ourselves in confession before God and we bring our sins, and we don't treat God's grace lightly and we don't treat it cheap, we know that Christ is going to forgive us. And when we harbour bad thoughts or we harbour resentments towards each other, maybe it's in our lives, in our workplaces or in families or in marriages, we know that we can bring it before God and God brings us deliverance and forgiveness. And this leads to my final point today. See yourself how God desires you to be. When I read words like broken heart and seeing the sin ever before you, this automatically took me back straight back to the very first sentence in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. When we talk about being poor in spirit, ultimately it literally means understanding who you really are in the presence of who God really is. And that's what David was doing in the psalm. He understood exactly who he was and he understood exactly who God was. It's having a spiritual bankruptcy. It's being humble before God. And what's the power of this beatitude? When Jesus says this beatitude, it's the foundation for everything that's to follow in the Sermon on the Mount, which is amazing exposition of what it is to be a Christian, to live as a Christian. But all of that, all of loving your enemies, all of the stuff that we've mentioned over the last few weeks... The foundation of all that is that you're meant to be poor in spirit and that you're meant to be humble. 
Are we humble people? Are we humble in our lives? There's humility focus with it in our lives. And the result of that, which I think is astounding, is it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven can best be summarized as the, the realm of the unhindered spirit. Yes, in a sense, it's looking forward to the future. When we die, we go into heaven, but it's also looking at the present. That heaven is with us now. The spirit of God, the spirit of the kingdom of God, goes where we go. And we have a responsibility to be Christians in this world and to be mature Christians at that. Because I think when I look at us today, you give a different perception when you're actually still on stage looking out at everybody's faces. But we want to be known as spiritually strong men and women of God, don't we? You know, I know we're referred to children of God. And this goes to the youth as well. You know, when you think about David when he was a young boy, he was like 17, or Daniel, he was only like in his 17 or younger than that when he went off to Babylon. We are children of God, but we need to also kind of get another understanding. Is that we're meant to be strong men and women, our firm foundations, and that our spirituality is meant to be strong. And that we are meant to be spiritually mature. And ultimately that comes from being humble. That is the roots of all that is to follow. So confession teaches us and it reminds us that we are meant to be humble and poor in spirit. He calls us perfect to be perfect as he is perfect and that involves dealing with ourselves on a regular basis. You know, I think when I sometimes go to bed and I pray or I pray or I'm with Elias and we say our prayers and we pray for other people, but how often do I look in at myself and actually pray, God, change me? Change me. Change me for the sake of my wife. Change me for you for the sake of my husband. Change me for the sake of my friends. Break my heart. There's power in the word break, isn't there? If you break a bone in your body, it hurts so much. And yet the healing process hurts just as much, I guess, doesn't it? Because it's long. And sometimes it takes a long time to get back to that place where God wants us to be. And the healing process can be long. But we need to remain humble in spirit. Daily looking at ourselves on a regular basis. That's, a, that's the connection between confession and adversity. Because adversity within us says, you're not capable of doing this. How could you possibly be a Christian? How can you go to church today? How can you speak to your friends this way? How could you behave in such a manner as you have such stuff inside of you? And you feel condemned. And in a sense, you know, that's, that's, that's good because in a, in a way, because we need to know what we've done is wrong, isn't it? But we need to look inward at ourselves and say, you know, that may be what they're saying, but Jesus and what we've been saying today about confessions says, actually, if I understand what my sin is, and if I understand who I am, and if I understand who God is, and I understand what God wants me to be, then I can overcome all this for the glory of Jesus and for the glory of others coming to know Jesus through me. I want to end with this as I come into a close. <clears throat> for Christians here today if you're a Christian here today and possibly what I'm saying seems a bit down possibly a bit, <laughs> it's a bit serious today 
And maybe you might even say that you feel a bit condemned. If you feel condemned, I would say it's argued for one of two reasons. Either the first reason is that I've done quite a poor job of explaining God's word to you this morning, which I hope I haven't. Or the second reason is that you need to go and take a, a better look at yourself. Because actually, if you believe what I said is the word of God, despite of maybe how I've said it, and you believe all the truths that I said, you shouldn't be feeling condemned because there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But you should be feeling, hopefully feel convicted. And conviction is completely different than condemnation. Conviction leads to forgiveness. Conviction leads to joy and repentance. Conviction leads to having a self that resembles Jesus better. And that's what we need to be. In a moment, I'm just going to ask us to sort of think, and in this moment of silence, and close our eyes and think, you know, what is it that I need to change about myself? Before we do that, I just want to say, if there's anyone here who doesn't think what I've said is correct, or maybe you're not a Christian here today, or maybe you're thinking, how could God possibly forgive me for what I've done in my life? I, the message of the cross says, you are, you can be forgiven just by coming to faith in Jesus. And David was a murderer, a liar, a deceiver, but what was he remembered as? He was remembered as a king, and he was remembered as a man after God's own heart. His sins were blotted out by God. And you can be remembered for the things that you do now on in your life as Christians and not be holding on to the past. Let's just bow our heads for a second and think. Think of things that maybe you might need to bring before God. Maybe you're not even used to doing confession. Maybe you're not even used to bringing your own faults towards God. Maybe you're not used to examining yourself. It's not something that you do on a regular basis. But let's just spend a moment just re-examining ourselves for the sake of God and for the sake of ourselves and for the sake of others. Like I said earlier, for our friends, for our family, for our brothers and sisters, for our husbands, for our wives. Maybe it's God needs to work on you first rather than working on them. Let's just do that for two minutes of silence. God, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to die for us, for the worst of us. We thank you, Lord, that you died for those, for David and for everybody else, and all their offerings and all their faith pointed towards you, even though they couldn't see you necessarily, or wondered how God was going to do it, but they pointed and looked to you, Jesus. And we thank you that you died for them, and for us, and for our friends and family. Lord, we pray, God, that you would work on me. Work on me, God. Help me to see my sin for what it really is, not to wash over it, not to ignore it, 
not to think it's such a small sin, it doesn't matter. But help me to learn from confession, Lord, that I would learn what my sin is, that I would learn that I am a sinner in your presence, but I have a great and awesome King and a God who loves me. And I will live a life that is worthy of my calling as a Christian. As a man, as a woman of God, that I would also be known as a man or woman of God who is after your heart. Break my heart, no matter what the pain may be, in order that I may search for yours. No matter what the pain might be, God, take me through whatever avenue you have. Because as we've been learning, God, you are with us. You will comfort us. You are our shield and our protector. And you will guide us through all things in life. But Lord, work on me. For your sake and for your glory, we pray. Amen.